I'm Brian Santo, EE Times Editor-in-Chief, and you're listening to EE Times On Air. This is your briefing for the week ending July 19th. This week, artificial intelligence is a vastly complex market. There's a fierce competition among hardware vendors to be the best platform for AI applications. But first, you have to know what it means to be the best. This week, analyst Carl Freund from More Insights talks to us about the latest AI benchmarks. Researchers are reimagining what, fundamentally, a vehicle is. One company just put everything other than the chassis, literally everything, entirely inside the wheels. We'll explore that and other proposals. And it's the 50th anniversary of the Apollo 11 space mission, the first time people set foot on the moon. This week, we look back and also look forward to going back to the moon. The dust is a major problem. It sticks to everything. It's highly abrasive material. It gets into everything. I think on the first lunar landing, it became a big problem. So you have to find a way to manage that before we can go back there. We'll get back to the moon in a moment. First up, artificial intelligence is going to be the next big, uh, no, ginormous market for computer chips. There's fierce competition among IC vendors to design platforms that can host various AI applications. Naturally, each wants to prove their chips are the best, and for that, they need benchmarks. There's a new set called MLPerf. EE Times editor Rick Merritt talks to analyst Carl Freund, who wrote the story for us about the new benchmarks. Thanks for making some time today, and thanks last week for covering for us the new results that came out of MLPerf. So what did we learn about kind of who's in the lead of this AI race from those results? I think what we learned from these benchmarks is that uh, both Google and NVIDIA have just some incredible hardware and have made significant investments in software. A lot of the performance improvements actually came from, from software innovations and tuning and really focusing on the AI algorithms. And so they're both able to achieve some very, very impressive speed ups uh, with their, 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 their hardware GPUs in the case of NVIDIA and the TPU in the case, in case of Google. All right, very good. Now, we both know that there's there's dozens of companies that are coming out with AI training accelerators. A lot of them are startups. Why are, are none of them yet putting out any results? Yeah, that's a great question, Rick. You know, I think the uh, anticipation of the 40-some-odd startups around the world that are all building hardware to accelerate uh, artificial intelligence, uh, expectations are set very high. Uh, by the companies and by the industry, and those expectations are difficult to meet. So there's really not a lot of hardware available today from these startups. And what is available is primarily for inference, uh, the actual processing of trained neural networks, not the development of the the neural networks themselves, the process called training. In the realm of training, there's really only two players, NVIDIA and Google. Intel hopefully will have a, a competitive product uh, by the end of this year. And, and uh, the uh, training market is li- right now the largest market. But in the long term, the inference market is probably going to be the bigger market opportunity. All right, good enough. So uh, what's the next milestone here, Carl? 
Well, actually, I think what's uh, what, what's next is going to be the inference uh, benchmarks. Um, uh, they have they have not been published yet by any of the players, and I think that is an opportunity for the startups and large companies, Qualcomm and, and Intel, um, to be able to demonstrate their prowess in inference processing. Um, I would also note that the uh, cost of the training is still quite high. These systems that ran these benchmarks are, are, are massive supercomputers. I estimate the NVIDIA supercomputer that ran this benchmark is probably close to about a $40 million U.S. list price. So, so training is still very expensive. Costs have got to come down. And second thing is we hopefully will see some inference benchmarks that uh, we can use to assess the startup uh, potential in, uh, in penetrating that market. All right, Carl Freund. Analyst for AI with more insights and strategy. Thanks so much for being on EE Times On Air. Innovation in the automotive industry is hardly confined to electric vehicles or autonomous vehicles. EE Times has come across several wild new proposals for how to build a car in the future. International editor Junko Yoshida talked with our London correspondent Nitin Dehat about it. Nitin, you recently reported on an Israeli startup who has developed a modular EV platform, you said. Presumably, all the components um, previously found under the hood are now in the wheel, as you wrote. What does that entail? Can you explain? Yes, Junko. Uh, I'd spoken to Daniel Barel, co-founder of the Israeli startup RE, which has just come out of stealth mode with a wheel design that integrates the motor, steering, suspension, drivetrain, sensing, electronics, rim, and tire all in the wheel. That's quite a mouthful, but yeah, they have. <laughs> they do. They do claim to put all of that into the wheel. Wow! All right, so that's a lot. So you know, just uh, take me from the top. What sort of advantages will such a platform bring to the car OEMs and tier ones? Yeah, it's quite interesting, actually. Um, I just attended an intelligent mobility conference in London yeah. where Benny Daniel, uh, VP with Frost & Sullivan, said the existing E&E architecture in, in cars is really left wanting. And he implied that conventional platforms are outdated. He said the direction of the industry is actually a skateboard platform, one which is clearly adopted by Tesla. Uh, he said that by 2025, 13 OEM brands will launch battery electric vehicles on a skateboard platform. So, uh, just for our listeners, um, can you explain what skateboard uh, platform mean? Actually, even I found it very <laughs> difficult to understand when I first read it uh, in yeah. the re press release when they sent it to me. But I think um, it's essentially what what it says on the tin. It's a skateboard, uh, and this was a sort of invented by GM back in two thousand and two. Uh, what you've got is um, the platform is on what looks like a skateboard, ah. and then what we have done is actually put everything that uh, for the car into the wheel. So you said that Tesla is using skateboard platform. Uh, what they're doing is different from what we is pitching here, right? Can you tell me the difference? The difference is uh, the skateboard platform that you know, GM advocated is basically yeah. saying, you know, let's make it a clean platform where everything can be, you know, sort of below the platform and everything above can be the space. But I think a lot of companies are are using some form of that platform, and Tesla is obviously using that. But if you look at the Tesla, uh, I mean, they do use a lot of the space. 
quite effectively above that platform. And what what Re is actually doing is integrating everything into the wheel so that the whole auto platform uh, is contained within the skateboard. And then it opens up the flexibility for OEMs to use that single platform to create everything on top, you know, from robo taxis to cars to trucks. Oh, I see. Yeah, that's it. So, so that's uh, essentially make, making it a, as a universal platform Correct. as you wrote, right? Yeah. Okay. All right. So, as good as it sounds, though, I, you know, I'm a bit of a skeptic here because I wonder, you know, the 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 uh, OEMs, traditional OEMs, uh, may resist this idea because they have invested so much for the current automotive design. You know, we're talking about the change in the architecture in terms of the wiring and cabling that they used to do to this new skateboard platform. Plus, the OEMs already have a production, you know, well-oiled production lines that are designed for the mass production of the conventional cars. So, is we this startup? Are they ready to um, respond to the potential, uh, you know, uh, the resistance from OEMs? Um, well, yes, you would have obviously a lot of resistance. Um, there's a lot of existing manufacturing infrastructure, um, and but if you think about it, if it's eliminating, I think one of the aspects you said was about you know all the cabling and the infrastructure. Right. If 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 the wheel is really getting rid of all of that, uh, then they'll actually probably welcome that. But I'll, I'll actually say any new disruptive technology. Um, there's going to be resistance, but you just need a small handful of early adopters to see what's possible and, and get it out there in the market. If it takes off and it can demonstrate significant cost savings and a shorter time to deliver that return on investment, then there might be gradual adoption. And I think that happens. I mean, I remember, so I don't want to keep, keep on, but I, when I was involved with the startup, yeah, we were disruptive, but um, eventually it takes off. Yeah. So... Um, cut to the chase. When will the new platform be ready? The CEO told us uh, they will present early prototypes with partners during 2019, but he wasn't really more specific than that. Uh, they're still deciding on you know, what market to address first, because obviously if it's a universal framework, it can it can go for anything, you know, as, as we said, you know, from trucks to robo-taxis to cars. But I don't think cars will be their first market. As you said, you know, there's going to be resistance. So it'll be probably the low-speed vehicles and commercial vehicles, which are the low-hanging fruit. And that's what he said uh, they'll probably target first. All right. Very good. Thank you so much, Nitin. Thank you. This Saturday, July 20th, will be the 50th anniversary of the first step taken on the moon. We've got a set of stories on the website to commemorate the event, including a series we did to mark the 40th anniversary, along with several brand new articles, including a few by George Leopold, who is not only a longtime EE Times editor, but is also an authority on the NASA space program. George has authored a book on one of America's great astronauts, Gus Grissom who participated in the Apollo, Gemini, and Mercury programs. Welcome back to the podcast, George. Hey, Brian. Good to be back with you. I have a really clear memory from 50 years ago. My mom and dad getting me out of bed and dragging me downstairs to watch Neil Armstrong walk on the moon. As sleepy as I was, it was incredibly exciting. And I think every kid alive in the 1960s considered becoming an astronaut. How about you? What are your memories from back then? Well, I think like uh, you know, a lot of folks my age, my generation, you know, we sort of remember that night as magical. It was an 
night of July 20th was like Christmas Eve. Those uh, two guys coming, fuzzy figures coming down that ladder. It was unforgettable. And, you know, I guess, uh, I guess even at a young age, you sort of sense that this was something historic, something that, uh, perhaps for the first time in a long time, you know, sort of pulled the whole planet together and, you know, we did it. It wasn't just the Americans, but we all did it. So it was a, a very magical thing and uh, a bit ephemeral, but uh, nevertheless, I think it was significant. And maybe that Im those images alone made that $180 billion in 2019 dollars worth, worth the effort. Ten years ago, EE Times ran a special report looking back on Apollo 11 on the 40th anniversary. Now, we've reposted that on the website, by the way, on eetimes.com. You contributed to that report, and you were already pretty prepared for it, right? Yeah, ten years ago, we did a, a, a special report, uh, 40th anniversary of Apollo 11. One of the people we interviewed, Alan Bean, said uh, the reason everybody showed up uh, for for the 40th anniversary was that he checked the actuarial tables and realized that a lot of these guys wouldn't be here uh, for the 50th. And unfortunately, he was right. Uh, there were only a few of the people who walked on the moon or saw saw the whole circle of the Earth alive today. So uh, luckily, two of the Apollo 11 uh, astronauts, uh, the crew of the first moon landing, are still here. Mike Collins and Buzz Aldrin uh, were profiling the great... Mike Collins in EE Times this week. He's one of my favorites. And, you know, his his conclusion was that, uh, you know, what did this all mean? It was about leaving. It was about leaving the Earth for the first time and, you know, looking back and seeing the whole Earth and realizing what we have down here. So I think it changed everybody's perspective. Of course, the famous Earth, Earthrise photograph and so forth that uh, changed our whole view of where we fit in the universe. So... Again, that alone probably made the whole thing worth it. So what's changed in the 10 years since then? Well, uh, I guess, you know, in the last 10 years since since we took a look at this, the 40th anniversary to the 50th anniversary of Apollo 11, um, you know, we've, uh, we've seen a whole commercial space industry grow up. If we're going to get back to the moon, it's probably going to be, uh, uh, you know, an uh, industry NASA effort with... Uh, with the industry guys supplying most of the hardware and and NASA sort of looking over their shoulder and making sure the software works and getting everything right because everything has got to be right. This is a dangerous, high-risk business. Space is unforgiving. Um, at some point, Elon Musk or Jeff Bezos or one of these guys is going to have an accident. Someone's going to get killed, and then you know we'll find out how resilient their their business model is. But that's just the nature of space travel. If we might be going back to the moon, I, I have to bring this up because it's it's new information to me. I always knew that without an atmosphere for protection, radiation would be a serious problem. And recently we discovered on the plus side, there might be ice to mine on the moon, a source of oxygen to breathe and hydrogen for fuel. But what I just learned is that moon dust is incredibly vicious, harsh stuff. Um, it's way tougher to go back to the moon than I ever realized way many more challenges. Is this any more involved in effort than, say, going to Mars or asteroid mining? Yeah, if we uh, go back to the moon, you know, half the problem is finding a way to get back. Right now, we don't have a way to get back, but they're, they're talking a lot about it, but we'll see if any of that pans out. But one of the big problems, as you point out, is yeah, that 
The dust is a major problem. It sticks to everything. Uh, it's the, it's highly abrasive material. It gets into everything. I think on the first lunar landing, they were getting moon dust uh, in you know the the connections between their suits and their gloves, and it became a big problem. So you have to find a way to to uh, to manage that before we can go back there and you know do whatever we're going to do on Mar on, on on the moon in terms of. Uh, you know, getting out the water that you could use as fuel to go out to Mars or out to an asteroid, something like that. I, I asked uh, the writer Homer Hickam, who maybe some of the listeners know from October Sky, uh, about the asteroid mining. He uh, was, of course, a miner's son in West Virginia, and he said he looked at the board of directors of some of these companies, startups that are proposing asteroid mining, and he said they didn't have any miners on their uh, their board of directors, so you know they got to they they need to focus in on uh, the details here to get it right. Okay, last question: You doing anything to celebrate on July twentieth? Well, on July twentieth, I will be at Purdue University. The alma mater of uh, the subject of my biography, Gus Grissom, as well, of course, as the alma mater of the first man on the moon, Neil Armstrong. The uh, engineering building at Purdue University is named for Neil Armstrong. There's a statue of him out in front. They're obviously, uh, and rightfully so, quite proud of him. And also the last man on the moon, um, Gene Cernan, is also a uh, a moonwalker and a, and a, uh, a Purdue graduate. So I think, they're, I think Purdue has more uh, astronauts than any other, has produced more astronauts than any other university. So they're, they're quite proud of their tradition and as they say at Purdue, boiler up. Okay, that was George Leopold, EE Times editor and author of the book, Calculated Risk, The Supersonic Life and Times of Gus Grissom. It's a great read. Available wherever fine books are sold. So, have you had your fill of nostalgia yet? The answer is no, you have not. Another milestone in the space exploration field happened 44 years ago this week. On July 17th, 1975, Apollo 18 and Soyuz 19 docked together, the first time two vessels from two different countries met in space. Also in July 17th, this time way back in 1850, astronomers at the Harvard Observatory snapped the first photograph of a star. It was taken through the Great Refractor, one of the two most powerful telescopes on Earth at the time. It had a 20-foot-long mahogany veneer tube with a lens 15 inches in diameter. The photo, technically a daguerreotype, was of the star Vega, the second brightest star visible in the Northern Hemisphere. On July 18, 1968, Robert Noyce, Andy Grove, and Gordon Moore incorporated a company. They smooshed together the words integrated and electronics to create the company's name. I interviewed Bob Noyce in 1988 when he was named the chairman of Semitech. Semitech is a consortium of U.S. chip vendors and U.S. fab equipment suppliers dedicated to researching and developing new manufacturing technologies. It was then only a year old. It was a response to the growing sophistication and success of rival Japanese companies. At the time, there was a lot of consternation about that. I asked Noyce about the threat of foreign competition. His answer was, you do everything you can to remain competitive yourself. And if everyone helps to make the pie bigger, what's the problem with competition? I wonder how many people would agree with that today. Well, 
That's your weekly briefing for the week ending July 19th. This podcast is produced by Aspen Core Studio. It was engineered by Taylor Marvin and Greg McRae at Coop Studios. The segment producer was Katie Huss. The transcript of this podcast can be found on eetimes.com, complete with links to the articles we refer to. Be sure to join us next week for your July 26th weekly briefing on EE Times On Air. I'm Brian Santos.